This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to open those up with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11 is where we are going to be today. Uh, For those who are regular attenders here at FBC Diana, uh, you'll know that we've been studying through Acts for quite some time now. And Acts chapter 11 is just the next place in the the series of our expositional study through the book of Acts. There there really are kind of two two ways, two approaches uh, to preaching, and both have their place and and their benefits. Uh, One is topical preaching. Uh, wherein we seek, like a systematic theologian, to find out what the Bible has to say on any particular topic. We try to go from various places in the Bible uh, to, to think on and try to apply uh, a certain doctrinal statement to our lives or a belief or a certain practice that we ought to have. Uh, topical preaching, as I said, has its place and it is a very valuable thing. We, we do topical preaching here at least once a month. In fact, we're going to be teaching through the Apostles' Creed in a topical manner throughout uh, the, uh, the rest of this year. But the steady diet of preaching here at FBC Diana is expositional or expository. Those two words are, are essentially interchangeable. And what that is, is, is the idea that we, we read through the Bible and we let the Bible say whatever the main point of the sermon is going to be for that day. Uh, so as the preacher comes to the text, there's not already in mind what, what we're going to be preaching on or thinking on this coming Sunday. And then we try to figure out how to make that text fit within that within those uh, parameters, but rather we come to the Bible, we try to understand what's being said there, what the main point of that passage is, and that then drives the main point of the sermon. Uh, That is the kind of preaching that, Lord willing, you'll experience uh, here today. That at least is my aim. So when we come to Acts chapter 11, uh, for those who were here last Sunday, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's sort of repeated from last Sunday. But the main point of Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, is not the same main point as was there in Acts chapter 10, at least as I see it. The main point that we see here is what to do about what happened in Acts chapter 10. And that's going to be where we'll spend our time today. As I like to do, I want to ask you some questions to sort of get the brain juices flowing as we get into our our time this morning. And the first question I'd like to ask you is, is what would you say if someone said to you, You Christians are all just hypocrites. You think you're holier than everyone else, but you're just as bad as they are. Or what might you say if somebody said, you Christians are so judgmental. You all think you've got it all right and you think everybody else is wrong. Well, should Christians stop caring so much about holiness, about moral uprightness? Should Christians stop drawing lines? Between right and wrong, true and false, saved and unsaved, those who are in Christian fellowship and those who are out. Should Christians just stop doing that? Well, as we read through the passage that we're going to be looking at today, I think one possible way of of understanding what's being said there is to say, yes, indeed, there should be no more lines anymore. However, as I hope to demonstrate and Lord willing, I will. The New Testament is just as clear as the old about drawing lines between those who are in and those who are out. Those who enjoy God's blessings and those who remain under his curse. 
The difference, one major difference between the old covenant and the new is that the new covenant is accessible on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he continues to do. This is not to say that people were saved differently in the Old Testament than they are in the new. But it is to say that there were many laws, many rules in the Mosaic covenantal laws um, that were meant to drive one to their understanding of who God is actually revealing himself to be. The laws were meant to not save anyone, but to take people by the shirt collar to say, look at your need for a savior, for a mediator, for a redeemer, which God has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm already getting ahead of myself and I'm using some words that are kind of churchy words this morning, which I have not done a good job of explaining as of yet. And I intend to do that as we continue on with our time today. But let's dive into our passage. As I said, Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18 is where we're going to be. Just by really quick background, Acts chapter 10 was about the conversion of non-Jews, Gentiles, into the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, the covenant of the God of the universe. This is what happened in Acts chapter 10. So as we'll see in Acts chapter 11, the question arises, what do we do? How do we embrace? Do we embrace these new converts into the covenant that God has made with his people? Well, by way of introduction, uh, that's what all that was. Let's turn our attention now to Acts chapter 11. Would you mind standing with me as I read from Acts chapter 11? I'll start in verse 1 and I'll read through verse 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So Peter went up to Jerusalem, and the cir- when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived in the house at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea and the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house and he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which You will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them, gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? 
When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. The main point that I'd like to draw out of this passage, which I I believe is uh, uh, the main point of this passage, is that God makes sinners holy through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Christians are both to both enjoy and fight for fellowship with one another on the basis of shared repentance and faith. Uh, hopefully that's been on the board for a little while. And if you're a note taker, maybe you've been trying to write that down. Uh, you're welcome. I have placed the main point in the bulletin. As a matter of fact, this is the second week in a row I've done, I think two, maybe three. Uh, so it's, it's there in your bulletin. If you want to refer back to it, you're welcome to do that. Uh, that main point is something I hope to unpack throughout the rest of the sermon. So it will be uh, what I, I hope to, to continue to emphasize and, and drive home. Uh, there'll be five points today for those who like to take notes. First, the, just basically walk into the passage. First, the criticism. Secondly, the explanation that Peter gives to the criticism. Then third, his rationale. How does he explain all that? Fourthly, the conclusion. What do they conclude in verse 18? And then fifth and finally, uh, I will try to give us uh, three takeaways, though I hope to give us some application as we go. Well, let's start off with point number one, the criticism, looking especially at verses one to three in Acts chapter 11. What is the criticism that Peter received from his Jewish brethren when he came back to Jerusalem after preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household there in Caesarea? Well, essentially, the criticism he got was you broke the law. Peter, you broke the law. Now, at least some of the Christians in Jerusalem Those, Luke says, were among what he called in verse 2, the circumcision party. They criticized Peter for breaking some major aspects of the Mosaic covenantal law. So their criticism is one that will just go right over our heads if if we don't know a lot of Bible background here. Specifically, their criticism we see in verse 3 was, you, Peter, went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So a couple of things I want to try to explain or unpack a little bit for us. Why did Luke, uh, the author of the book of Acts, why did he call these Christians in Jerusalem, at least some of them who were there, why did he call them the circumcision party? Well, this is the first use of that phrase in the New Testament, but afterwards it's used several times. Positively, it simply refers to descendants of Abraham. Uh, The sign of circumcision was the sign that God gave to Abraham and his descendants when God gave his covenant, his promises to bless Abraham and his offspring. There's much more that could be said about that. Maybe there are some more questions that you have about it. Uh, and certainly we could talk more about that after the service is over with. I'd be glad to talk with you about how this refers to Old Testament stuff. So it's specifically referring to that covenant sign that God gave to Abraham, uh, which was the first of many distinctive marks, even as the Mosaic covenant comes into play, as God gives his covenant to his people, Israel, the descendants of Abraham through Moses. This is still a major aspect of those signs or the the distinctive marks of God's covenant with his Old Testament people. So positively, that's what it's referring to. Negatively, the New Testament uses this phrase not just in positive terms, but often in negative terms. And negatively, it refers to a group of people among various Christian churches. So Christians being called among this party. They held the view that the only way to be truly Christian was to believe, believe in Christ and also to adhere to the Mosaic covenantal laws, especially the ceremonial laws. They were of great interest to them. So belief in Jesus wasn't enough. 
you also must embrace all of the ceremonial and civil laws of the Mosaic covenant. That's the negative use of this term. And that's the way Luke is using it here. So why were they so upset that Peter ate with these uncircumcised Gentiles, these non-Jews, these people who were not physically, visibly associated with the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of Moses? Well, the same accusation came to Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was one who got criticism when he ate with sinners in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 15 and other places. The Mosaic Covenant, the reason why Jesus received this criticism and why Peter was getting this criticism here is because the Mosaic Covenant, that covenant that God gave through Moses to the people of Israel, think Mount Sinai, end of Exodus, the book of Leviticus and on in uh, through the first five books of the Old Testament. The Mosaic Covenant included dietary and social laws, which are specifically outlined in the book of Leviticus. Let me just mention a few. So in Leviticus chapter seven, for example, One of God's laws for his old covenant people, his Mosaic covenant people, was that flesh or meat that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. Uh, So even if it's clean meat, if it touches an unclean thing, it's not clean anymore and you shouldn't eat it. Again, in Leviticus chapter 7, the person who eats while an uncleanness is on him. So in some way or another, this person has made himself unclean, him or herself unclean. And various stipulations would, would say whether or not that was the case. That person, if one eats of God's sacrifices, God's, uh, the, the food, the meat that was to be offered to God and, and, and even ingested as a celebration of God's provision, if somebody participates in that eating, then that person, if they're unclean, if they've got some uncleanness on them, that person shall be cut off from his people. Acts chapter 7, I'm sorry, uh, Leviticus chapter 7, verse 20. And verse 21, if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, that person shall be cut off from his people. So human uncleanness were those uh, most often who had some kind of disease, usually associated with bleeding or blood. Unclean animals were among the list of unclean animals. There were many, but uh, camels, rabbits, pigs, many other animals. To eat or even touch these would result in sharing their uncleanness. These various animals are designated as unclean for God's people throughout the Mosaic Covenant. Note that the result of of sharing in the uncleanness of these people who become unclean or animals unclean, the result is to be cut off from the people, cut off from God's covenant people in the world. So for a God-fearing, Mosaic Covenant-obeying descendant of Abraham... Their relationship with God and their identity as the people of God in the world was directly uh, tied to what they ate and who they ate with, who they associated with. This is the background for the criticism that Peter is getting from his Jewish Christian brethren. Well, if we start talking about the uncleanness versus cleanness and how God designates a bunch of things that are unclean and a bunch of processes that are unclean throughout the Mosaic Covenant... The question I think immediately comes up if we're, you know, if we're thinking all about the whole thing, what's, what's with all those laws to begin with? Why such laws to, to designate this stuff is clean and that stuff is not, uh, this stuff is okay to be around and that stuff isn't, these people are clean and those people aren't. Why, why are those things there in the first place? Well, if you read through the Levitical law, the, the laws that are explicit there in Leviticus, 
really, these come on the heels of God revealing his covenant to the people of Israel in Exodus. And God is all about revealing himself as holy, as pure, as righteous, as morally untainted. And because God is this, he demands that his people be that as well. So Leviticus is all about holiness. And as I said before, it comes right after Exodus. So you might recall at the very end of Exodus, the the whole Exodus story is about how God is coming to be with his people. First, he rescues them out of their out of their slavery there in Egypt, brings them out to himself. But the plan is not merely to deliver them from slavery. It is to be with them as their God. And this is what happens at the very end of the book of Exodus. God stipulates how he's going to be able to be with his people. He's holy. He can't just come and be with these sinful people in any old way. It has to be established in, by his parameters on, on his terms. So he comes to be with his people there in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. God fills this tabernacle that he said is to be built for him to come and be with his people. And then God proceeds throughout the book of Leviticus to give specific commands about, about how the priestly mediated ceremonies are to take place, how God's people can be with God because the people are not by definition holy. God is holy. So how can they be with him? How can they interact with him? How can they approach him on his terms? Well, to approach him in holiness. This is the only way that that can happen. So a summary, sort of the whole of book of, a book of Leviticus is expressed in chapter 10. In chapter 10 of Leviticus, verses 10 and 11, God says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Everybody is supposed to know that this stuff is clean and that stuff isn't because God is clean. And if you're to approach God, you are to do so on the basis of cleanness, holiness, purity. And the reason for this distinction is in Leviticus 11 verses 44 and 45. The distinction between the clean and the unclean. For I, chapter 11, verse 44, for I am the Lord, your God, consecrate or separate yourselves, therefore, and be holy for I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. These various laws that were given to the people of Israel were radically different than the way that everybody else lived outside of Israel. So it it would have made a clear, distinctive mark. These people are not like everybody else. These people are different than everyone else. Their God is different than everybody else. It's the reason for the kind of laws that we see there. So then these people are different than everybody else. These people are God set apart, consecrated, holy people because God is holy. Therefore, by definition, according to these Levitical laws, everybody else outside is what? Unclean and unholy. By definition, the others are separated from God, not able to approach God because only on his terms is anyone able to approach him. Well, there's more that could be said about all of this, but probably in our own day, this is a little bit hard to try to figure out, okay, so what, what do we do with that? People don't usually talk in terms of cleanness and uncleanness with regard to to religion or approaching God. In fact, probably in our day, it's much more common for people to, to not really think about an in and an, and an out. But really, you know, you can approach God in any old way that you like. But it is our tendency 
in whatever generation we live to to come up with kind of a, a system of, of laws or a structure by which this is what you're supposed to do and this is what you're not supposed to do. And if you live within these boundaries, well, then you're you're good before God. And if you if you step outside of those boundaries, well, then you're not so so good before God. Now, this is basically a way to summarize what's often called legalism. And so while there's more to what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 11 than mere legalism, it certainly is underneath that umbrella. So again, legalism is the idea that obedience to some kind of law or some kind of structure is how you get into or maintain a right relationship with God. And legalism, as I said, is is sort of natural to fallen humanity. We, We like to create checkboxes. You know, check those boxes. We, we create check boxes that we can we can accomplish fairly well. It seems we check those boxes, and then we we judge everybody else who doesn't check those same boxes that we do. Well, that's if our if our pride takes a bit more of an optimistic view. If our pride takes a pessimistic shape, well, then we we might have a certain structure or, or, or law uh, stipulations uh, that that are just too much for us. We we send we tend towards self loathing, and so we think you know in order to be a good person, you have to be these things, and I know I'm not those things. And so if our pride then takes a pessimistic view, we see ourselves as, as never quite good enough. And then we're sort of cynically judging anybody who does meet that standard. You know, anybody else who does better than us, we're not so happy with them because, you know, look at them. They make me feel so bad. Uh, most Christians today are not arguing for a return to the holiness code, to the Levitical law. But every generation and every church and every Christian must carefully and vigorously resist legalism. The Bible certainly does give us commands that we should obey, but we must never confuse the commands the Bible gives to the promises the gospel makes. Now, these are distinct realities. The promises the gospel makes is believe, believe, trust in, give yourself over to, cling to who Jesus is and what he's done. And then, of course, live according to that belief, live in keeping with that belief, follow the commands. But these two are distinct. And anytime we try to mix them together, we end up in a bad situation. So legalism of any kind, either Old Testament legalism or New Testament legalism, it fails to understand the true ground or basis of God's gracious covenant. So what is that ground? What is the basis? How is it that anyone can have right relationship with God if not on the basis of following certain laws? Well, that's the explanation we get here in Acts chapter 11. So point number two is the explanation, looking especially at verses 4 through 12. Peter's explanation when he receives this criticism from his Jewish Christian brethren back in Jerusalem, he answers them by essentially saying, God said so. This is his answer. Why did I go and eat with those Gentiles, those unclean folks? Because God told me to. That's how he answers the question. We see in verse four, he begins to explain. And he told them that God had revealed in this special way that God had made clean. The underlying word there is the word from which we get the the word cathartic, uh, you know, a a catharsis. Uh, Think about a cathartic experience, that sort of cleansing uh, where you you feel like something is not quite right. And then you have this cathartic experience where you're you're cleansed and your your palate is is, uh, renewed. God had made clean what was once common or defiled or impure. God himself had specifically revealed to Peter 
that the ceremonial laws, the holiness code of the Mosaic covenant, no longer set the dividing line between the clean and the unclean. God was the one who said this. But not because God had changed his mind or because he was just done with the ceremonial laws. The Mosaic covenant didn't matter anymore. No, that's not what happened here. Remember that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he never broke any of the Mosaic covenantal law. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees accused him of doing so. He broke their traditions, but Jesus never broke any of the Mosaic covenantal laws. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. In fact, Jesus went on to say, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The gospel, the new covenant in Jesus Christ is not the abolition or the neglect of the Mosaic covenantal law, God's law. The gospel, the new covenant in Jesus is the answer to the inevitable question that comes as a result of thinking just for three seconds on what the law reveals about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. That's what the gospel is. It's the answer. So how does God cleanse defiled or unclean people? Oh, that's the question. This is the question for all of us this morning and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Do you feel a sense of your own shame and guilt for not being as you ought to be before God? Do you ever feel as though you are not what you should be? How can God cleanse sinners like us? Well, the answer is not spelled out in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18 specifically, but in Peter's reference back to Acts chapter 10, the passage does spell it out very clearly. So just look at Acts chapter 10 with me. Let me just revisit this for a moment. The message of the gospel, the answer to the question, how does God cleanse defiled, impure sinners like us is there in Acts chapter 10. Verse 36, it's the message of good news of peace through Jesus, who was, verse 38, anointed or set apart or consecrated by God as the Messiah or the Christ. In verse 39, it's the news that Jesus was put to death by hanging on a tree. And this was the kind of death that was reserved for sinners who are cursed by God, Deuteronomy 21, and counted as defiled or unclean among God's covenant people. So the Bible is telling us here in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus was counted, considered in his death as one who was cursed or unclean before God. But that news in Acts chapter 10 verse 40 is joined with the news that God vindicated Jesus as the righteous one, the justifier of sinners, the preeminent redeemer by raising him on the third day. So while in Jesus's death, he was counted as unclean, as defiled, as sinful, he wasn't counted as as that indefinitely by God, but rather God vindicates him as the righteous one, the one who actually did fulfill every single one of God's commands by raising him from the dead. Because death is what? 
Death is the penalty for sin. Death is the ultimate curse. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. God vindicates him as the one who is alive forevermore because he is the righteous one. And then all of this news then gives way in verse 43 to Peter's announcement to those Gentiles that he's speaking to in Acts chapter 10 that everyone who believes in him, that is, believes in Jesus, trusts in, clings to Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is, on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done. So what's the answer to the question? How does God cleanse defiled, unclean sinners like us? Well, he does so by counting Jesus as defiled and unclean on our behalf and granting to us the righteousness that is Christ's. This is the gospel. And friends, I pray that you'll hear this as the good heavenly proclamation that it is. We should receive this good news as God's own promise to us. This is what it means to be the very basis of what it means to be a Christian is one who hears that message that Jesus is the one who's lived perfectly and who's died as the guilty one and who's been raised as the savior for guilty sinners. Hearing that message as not just true, generally speaking, but true for me. True for my salvation. I pray that you'll hear it this way today and that every day you and I will cling to that good news. Point number three is the rationale. How does Peter explain that this is what he understands in our passage this morning, back now in Acts chapter 11? Uh, the rationale begins in uh, chapter 11, verse 12, and goes on in through verse 17. His rationale uh, begins and is based upon the idea that God is the one who is sovereignly expanding his covenantal blessings. That God's the one who's doing all of this. God is the one who's behind it. He's the one who's arranged it. He's the one who's working throughout this entire encounter. So it was God in chapter 11, verse 9, who revealed to Peter, as Peter's telling his story to these Jewish Christian brethren, it was God that had, had revealed to Peter that he had made clean that which was previously declared unclean or common. In verses 13 and 14, it was God who sent the angel to Cornelius, though he's not named specifically in Acts chapter 11. We know from Acts chapter 10, that's the guy that Peter is talking about. It was God who sent the angel to Cornelius and told him to bring Peter so that Peter would declare to Cornelius and his household a message by which you will be saved. God was the one who was arranging this whole thing. And it was God, God the Holy Spirit, who fell upon or pressed against or happened upon those Gentiles who heard the message and believed. Acts chapter 11, verse 15. And this critical point of Peter's rationale, the reason for embracing this new understanding of the dividing line between clean and unclean. Listen to me. It's not a new understanding of what's clean and what's unclean. That's still true. That still holds. What is clean? That which is holy. God. He is clean and he says what's clean. Anything that is unholy is unclean. That definition is still true. But the dividing line has changed. The dividing line is no longer... The clean stuff are those people who live according to the Mosaic, the Mosaic covenantal ceremonial laws. But rather, the, the dividing line is now, what do you do with Jesus? That's the dividing line. That's the shift. And that's what's being revealed in Acts chapters 10 and 11. And so Peter is saying to his Jewish Christian brethren, God said that he's the one who's made the dividing line Jesus now. 
So the critical point then comes especially in verses 15 and 16. Peter realized that Jesus said he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And Peter saw and heard the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the very beginning. Now, this is what John said would happen when John the Baptist came as a forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah. John the Baptist in, uh, in, in John's gospel, uh, he's the one who proclaims that, uh, that I baptize you with water for repentance. This baptism of cleansing, this is not uncommon in the Old Testament. But he who is coming after me, John said, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's preparing the people to hear and understand that there's one who's going to do the baptizing, the washing, the cleansing, not just with water, but with the spirit of God. And Jesus himself promised to do this very thing in Acts chapter one. You heard from me, Jesus said, Acts chapter one, verses four and five, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit according to the promise of the father. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. And Peter was arguing that the Gentiles had received the same baptism of, with, by, in the Holy Spirit, which the Jewish believers had on the day of Pentecost, back there in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, Peter argued, God has welcomed Gentiles into his covenant blessings, and so should we. And this is essentially what he says in verse 17 of Acts chapter 11. It's our main passage, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in the way of God? Now, the implication is to those who are criticizing Peter, hey, you went and ate with those unclean Gentiles. Well, Peter's now turning the tables and saying back to them, look, God's the one who has made them clean, not on the basis of their obedience to the Mosaic covenantal law, but on the basis of their belief in, their trust in, their clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has verified that that is something they've received, salvation in the name of Jesus, forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. He's verified they've received that by giving them the same spirit that he's given to us. How could I stand in their way? Are you going to stand in their way now? Are you going to stand in the way of God? That's the implication of what Peter is saying. Now, this taps into what's really a driving theme throughout the book of Acts, as I've tried to point out a number of times already as we've been studying through the book of Acts. There, the book of Acts is the history of how God's kingdom, how Christ's kingdom in the world expanded. Uh, it's, it's the unfolding of that storyline. And we're here seeing the, the last kind of great burst of expansion into the ends of the earth. Uh, it all follows what Jesus' commission was way back there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said to his disciples, you'll be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we've seen at each step along the way, there's the preaching of the gospel, the belief in the gospel as something that those people who, who receive it possess themselves. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And then there's the baptism or the infilling or the falling upon of the Holy Spirit on those who believe. That's happened at each juncture along the way. So in Acts chapter 2, when those Jews there in Jerusalem first heard the gospel, there are 3,000 who believe, respond with repentance and faith, and there's the the, uh, evidence of the speaking in tongues and the infilling of the Holy Spirit there in Acts chapter 2. The same thing happens in Samaria when the gospel goes out to Judea and Samaria, and there in Acts chapter 8, 
There is the receiving of the word, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the infilling or baptizing of the Holy Spirit there as well. And now in Acts chapter 10, there are these ones who are counted among the ends of the earth, or even the Gentiles, who have received the word and have been baptized. At each one of these expansions of Christ's kingdom in the world, the Holy Spirit plays the key role. He, God's Spirit, is always the one who is advancing the kingdom of Christ in the world, and he is infilling all of those who are members of Christ's kingdom. So especially for those of us who are Christians here this morning, I want to say, brothers and sisters, this teaches us that all Christians enjoy real fellowship with one another. All Christians, though their cultures, their geographies, their social standing, their economic status, and their ethnicities, though all of that may differ, all Christians enjoy fellowship on the basis of their shared repentance and faith. They're turning from sin and they're trusting in Jesus. Indeed, all Christians share the same spirit who works such things in all Christians. There is a real spiritual unity, not just spiritual in the sense that a lot of people use it these days, like ethereal, undefined feeling type thing, but real God's actual spirit indwells all his people everywhere. And this is a genuine, real unity. This is why Paul can say to the congregation in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Or to the congregation in Ephesus, where Paul wrote, through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Friends, this means that our unity is greater with our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Russia than it is with our non-Christian neighbors who may vote the same way we do or eat the same food we do or enjoy the same sports as we do or share a thousand other similarities. We have real, genuine Christian unity with everyone else who's a Christian in the world. Incidentally, this is one of the main reasons that we care about and pray for other churches as a local church. Whether they be nearby or distant from us, whether they be Baptist or Presbyterian or Bible churches or non-denominational or whatever they might be, if they're true churches, we care about them because we share an eternal and genuine unity with them. All Christians who share the same gospel are indwelt by the same spirit. And we all are citizens of Christ's kingdom in the world, eagerly waiting that day when Christ will return and make his kingdom visible in full. And of course, this fellowship is all the more meaningful among specific congregations, wherein we know and love each other in tangible ways. And we encourage ongoing repentance and faith in each other's lives. And we all make our way along that pilgrim path toward the celestial city. So it's more meaningful among local churches when we have intimate relationships with one another, but it's just as transcendent and just as meaningful with all Christians everywhere, this real unity that we have. This is what Peter is arguing for, once again, on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus and what has he done? Let's see what they say in response. Point number four is the conclusion. Not the conclusion of the sermon that's yet to come, but their conclusion. What did they conclude? Verse 18. 
Well, they conclude that the Gentile believers, they are fellow participants in the new covenant. They say, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, God had indeed made a covenant with Abraham and God gave him the sign of circumcision to be the signal that Abraham's seed or offspring were participants in God's covenant. And God had also made a covenant with Israel, the nation of Abraham's children, through Moses and gave them every law of the holiness code, which set them apart from every other nation or ethnicity in the world. But when Christ came, when he lived and died and rose again, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and when he sent his spirit to dwell among his people, he inaugurated what the Bible calls the new covenant. The promises of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the author of Hebrews says, this new covenant was inaugurated or, or established by means of the blood of Christ. Securing an eternal redemption, a purchase. So that those who are called, whether Jew or Gentile, may receive the promised eternal inheritance by faith. God reconciled to himself all those who would repent, turn from sin, and believe, trust in Jesus. Unleashing the message of peace and access to God on the basis of his person and work. So the conclusion that we find in Acts chapter 11, verse 1 to 18, is that we understand, if we're honest with ourselves for three seconds, we understand that we are indeed unclean. We are guilty. The, the Jewish Christian brethren in Jerusalem were not wrong to say, hey, wait a second. These people are unclean. They were right in saying that they were unclean. But the conclusion is, how is it that these unclean people can become clean? How can they be welcomed into God's presence, welcomed into God's family, have right relationship with the God of the universe who is holy and impartial, bringing perfect judgment to every sinner everywhere? How can, how can they be welcomed in on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ? This is the good news. This is the conclusion. Now we see that in the, in the, in the first instance, when they hear this, this rationale and this explanation from Peter in Acts chapter 11, we see that their, their, first, their first response is to be silent and for at least some of them to say, well, then I guess the Gentiles must have received repentance from God as well. But we know that this episode isn't the last time that the question about how can God let unclean people into his kingdom? We can know that's not the last time that it arises. Though they fell silent when they first heard those things, at least some of them spoke up just a few chapters later. And no small portion of the content of the rest of the New Testament after Acts is written to deal with and or to explain how repentance and the forgiveness of sins comes only by faith or belief in Christ and not by one's ethnicity or by works or by any other means. As I mentioned before, legalism is sort of a perennial uh, uh, problem. It's something that comes up again and again. It, it doesn't lie dormant. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't go away. It's something that Christians have to constantly revisit. And we have to do this relentlessly. So in our own lives, what this looks like is, um, you know, maybe you're like me and sometimes you, 
you don't have as good of a week as you'd like to or as good of a day as you'd like to. And so you start wondering, can, can God really love a sinner like me? How, how is it uh, that God loves me now? Or, or, or will I still be saved tomorrow? Because I know just how sinful I am. And so your mind begins to wonder, oh, how, how does that whole thing work? How can God still have kindness or grace or, or mercy toward me? Well, the answer is well, because he, he never began his kindness or grace or mercy toward me because of me. It was always on the basis of someone else. It was on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're like me on some of my other days when I begin to feel somewhat prideful. You know, I'm doing better than I did last week. I'm definitely doing better than that guy over there. And so I started to think, you know, uh, God must be pretty happy with me. Ah, oh, but the pride crushing reality is there's nothing good in me that I can lift up to God and say, this is why, this is why I deserve your grace, your mercy, and your love. No, no, it's always on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So whichever tendency we see in ourselves, whatever day of the week it might be, the gospel pierces through that legalism and calls us to faith and repentance. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Cling to him. Point number five, three takeaways for us today, uh, in addition to the various applications been trying to make along the way. The first thing I'd like to call us to is that we Christians ought not to consider anyone unsavable. This, I think, is one good takeaway from what we're learning and considering here today. We today have even less warrant or reason than first century Jews to think that anyone is unclean or too dirty to hear and receive the gospel message of hope and holiness. Jewish Christians were not right to try to withhold the message of hope and holiness, uh, hope and, and uh, reconciliation from these Gentiles. They were not right to do that, but at least they could point to a Mosaic covenant. Hey, they're not doing it right. We can't even do that. So why should we ever think that anyone is out of bounds, that anyone is unsavable? In fact, the gospel is the very antidote to this kind of thinking. The gospel answers the question for both the prideful person and the self-loathing person. And to the one who thinks that they're unsavable, the gospel says, no, you could never. You were always unsavable according to yourself. I remember talking to a guy one time in a hospital bed and he had lived a particularly rough life. And uh, I didn't meet him until I just walked into the room. And so his friend is a friend of mine was saying, hey, look, here's my friend. He's, he's been he's kind of a rough guy. And, uh, you know, he, he knew I was a pastor who was coming in to talk to him. And so I figured a, a way to sort of break the ice a little bit would be to start off by saying, you know, man, I don't know who you are or what kind of life you've lived before now, but I just want to let you know way worse than you think it is. You're way more guilty before the Lord than you think you are. But the good news of the gospel is, is that God's grace is way more powerful than you might imagine. And that's, that's the good news. The gospel pierces those of us who think we're unsavable or that our friends are unsavable. And the gospel says, no, no, the the news is way worse and way better than you could possibly imagine. To the one who's prideful. Ah, the gospel answers that question as well. There is nothing good in you. That's the very reason you need a savior. Because you can never do it on your own. A second takeaway is we Christians must rely on divine revelation for the content of our beliefs and practices. Now, this is something that's sort of the, the underlying theme of this whole passage, but I've not really said anything about just, just yet, not, not at least explicitly. 
What was Peter's response when he received criticism from his, his Jewish Christian brothers there in Jerusalem? When they said, hey, wait a second, Peter, you've stepped out of bounds. Peter said, God told me to. Right? That was his answer. God had specially revealed that this is what he had intended for Peter to do. Now, in our own day, uh, we ought not rely on something we feel like God might be leading us toward or, or on some uh, special inkling, uh, inkling from, from the heavens or uh, some rumbly in the tumbly to tell us what we ought to do. We have the word of God, which tells us what God's will for us is and what God's will for everyone is. And so we should constantly and repeatedly be going back to the scriptures to find out what has God said. This should always inform and reform everything that we understand about what we're to believe and what we're to do. This should constantly be shaping and reshaping our beliefs and our practices. We always have a tendency to add or to take away from what God has revealed based on our own personal preferences, stuff that's culturally familiar to us, how we used to do church whenever we were teenagers, and all sorts of things. But we should be constantly going back to the scriptures and we must rely on divine revelation to tell us what we're to believe and what we're to do. What does God's word say? A third and final takeaway for us this morning is that we as Christians... And particularly as church members, so I'm, I'm speaking especially those who are members of FBC Diana this morning, or if you're a member of another church, this would apply to you and, and that church. We have the responsibility to both humbly and conscientiously admit new Christians into fellowship on the basis of shared repentance and faith. Now, as I said, the Christians in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, they were not wrong to say, hey, wait a second, Peter, on what basis are we to admit these new converts into fellowship with us. They were not wrong to have that, that uh, hold. What they were wrong in doing was saying that it's on the basis of the following of the Mosaic Covenantal Law. What Peter was saying is that God is saying that the basis is Jesus, his person in work, turning from sin and trusting in him. But the stipulation that there is, there, there is a necessary basis upon which our fellowship uh, resides, it rests, well, that's true. That's true in first century Christianity and second century Christianity and 21st century Christianity. So upon what basis do we have fellowship with other humans in this world? The real Christian, transcendent, eternal fellowship that Christians have. Upon what basis do we have that kind of fellowship? Well, we have that kind of fellowship on the basis of one's relationship to God through the work of Jesus Christ. They're being indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. So is this person repenting, turning from sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? If the answer to that question is yes, then this person is my Christian brother or sister. I have real and genuine fellowship with him or her. If the answer to that question is no, it doesn't mean that we have to be mean to each other. It doesn't mean we can't be friends, but it means that we're not on the same page, that we are headed in diametrically opposed directions. That I'm aiming to, inconsistently and imperfectly for sure, but I'm aiming to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with my life, and this person is not. They're headed in a different direction. And though they might even appear to be a Christian for a time, before long, time will show, time will reveal that we are headed in two totally separate directions. So we as a church family, we must humbly welcome in 
anyone who shares Christian fellowship with us. Anyone who's believing the same gospel that we have, following the same Jesus that we are, and aiming to cling tightly to the Savior, the one and only Savior that God has provided for us. We should humbly welcome in those who are doing that same thing. And we should conscientiously only welcome in those who are doing that same thing. This is especially applicable to those of us who have non-Christian family and friends who think they're Christians. This is especially relevant in the conversations that we have with our non-Christian friends and family, the, the ones who are not following Jesus in any, in any uh, meaningful way, but who claim to be Christians. We do them no favors by pretending they're Christians just in order to keep the peace. It's a false fellowship. And once again, it doesn't mean we have to be mean. We ought not be mean. We ought not be jerks just for the sake of being jerks. This would be a bad testimony of a Christian in the world just go around telling everybody they're not Christians. Right? But if we have meaningful relationship with someone who thinks they're a Christian but isn't, or is questionable, we show them real love by diving into that question with them, not by avoiding it. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means to understand the gospel, as I've just explained it from the Bible this morning, and to be repenting and believing. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be turning from sin and clinging to this Jesus, this Savior that God has provided for us. If our friends or our family members are not doing that, regardless of what they might call themselves, we, we ought to, we ought to uh, dive in to those areas of their lives that sort of reveal that they're living inconsistent. We all love uh, many folks, uh, you know, living in East Texas, almost everybody we we've, we've know or have met uh, think that they're Christians. Uh, we, we probably know many of them who are not living as Christians and yet feel perfectly content to call themselves Christians this very day. May God help us to have real fellowship. And may God help us to press into these conversations. I pray, first off, that God would help us to trust in this one and only Savior that he has provided for us. May he help us to turn from our sin and to believe in Jesus today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. He is always the only basis upon which we have right relationship with God or fellowship with other Christians. May God help us to enjoy real Christian fellowship on the basis of shared repentance and faith. And may God help us to fight for true Christian fellowship so that we might glorify God by making Christ's kingdom visible to whatever degree that it can be in this world until he comes. Would you bow with me and let's pray again? We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.